Our solar system was but a swirling dense cloud of interstellar gas and dust particles, known as the solar nebula. After a while, this cloud collapsed to form a huge disk swirling around its center. Imagine a huge donut, but the hole is really big. That's what this disk looked like. Some scientists hypothesized that it collapsed due to the shock wave of an explosion of a nearby star. Others hypothesized that it collapsed under its own gravity. But nonetheless, it was broken into a swirling disk of particles. Now, the center of the disk started to pull in more and more materials and substances from the actual disk. Now, the center started to enlarge because of the clubbing of materials and finally formed the sun. Now, our sun was formed primarily of hydrogen and helium. Now, our sun is powered by a phenomenon known as nuclear fusion. Basically, our sun gets all its power and energy from the fusion of nuclei which is basically the center of atoms. This happens when hydrogen nuclei combine together to form helium nuclei, which releases a tremendous amount of energy, the same amount of energy that powers our sun today. However, in the early times of the universe, at this point in time, our sun is yet to be powered by this energy, and it's quite literally just a ball of gas with an increase in pressure and temperature in its core that would eventually jumpstart the fusion of hydrogen. Right now, not that much except for the buildup of pressure in the sun's core is happening inside the sun. As these chemical reactions were going on, matter outside in the disk clubbed together to form larger and larger objects. Some of those objects were actually big enough for gravity to force them into spherical shapes. But why does gravity do that? Why is a spherical shape preferred by gravity? Well, in simple terms, a sphere allows for every point on its surface to have the same distance from its center. But so what? Why does that make it stable? We'll go more in depth into this in another episode. So getting back to topic, as gravity forced larger and larger objects into spheres, dwarf planets, regular planets and moons were formed. In other cases, planets on, on moons just didn't form. The asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is an example of the leftovers of the solar nebula, the parts that just weren't big enough to form moons or planets. Even smaller objects became comets, meteors, and irregularly shaped moons. Now, let's just fast forward to when the sun started to get powered by nuclear fusion. The sun is slowly starting to look like how it does now, starting to become a fiery, energetic ball of gas. As this happened, the sun's corona started to form. Don't confuse this with the virus. The corona of the sun is actually just the outermost layer of the sun's atmosphere, comprising mainly of plasma. Now, the corona has a temperature of about 2 million Kelvin and an extremely low density. It actually extends for millions and millions of kilometers and can be best seen during a solar eclipse, where it just looks like a halo around the black, Thing covering the sun. 
Now, the corona releases streams of charged particles, which form something known as the solar winds. Now, these solar winds are comprised mainly of hydrogen, small amounts of helium, and small traces of heavy ions and atomic nuclei like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon, etc., ripped apart from the heating of the corona. The solar winds swept away all the lighter elements like hydrogen and helium, leaving only the heavy rocky materials closer to the sun. These rocky materials started to create the terrestrial planets of Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. However, further away, the solar winds had less impact on the gases, so they were free to form the gas giants of Jupiter and Saturn. This was actually really convenient because only the rocky material could withstand the heat from the sun. So the first planets are terrestrial, while the fifth and sixth planets are both gas giants. Wondering where exactly Neptune and Uranus form? Well, the last two planets in the solar system are ice giants, which formed because of the great distance from the sun. Imagine being so far away from the sun, nearly 3 billion kilometers away. The planet's bound to be made of just ice. Now, let's talk about the planets, about how exactly they formed. We'll go one by one, going in order of which planet started first and ending with which one formed last. Now, which planet do you think formed first? When this question is asked, most people just assume that it's Mercury, when the first planet that actually formed in our solar system was Jupiter. Ah, Jupiter, the biggest planet in our whole solar system. One of the two huge gas giants. Jupiter took shape when the rest of the solar system did, about 4.5 billion years ago, when gravity pulled swirling gas and dust in to become this huge gas giant. Jupiter took most of the mass left over after the formation of the Sun, ending up with more than twice the combined material of all the other bodies in the solar system. In fact, Jupiter has the same ingredients as a star, but just didn't grow big enough to ignite. As Jupiter started to form, its moons formed alongside it. Jupiter has 79 identified moons, including the four Galilean moons. The Galilean moons, named after Galileo Galilei, of course, are Jupiter's four largest moons. They include Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto. I want to bring to your attention Ganymede, the biggest moon in our whole solar system. I would think of Ganymede as Jupiter's sun. You see, Jupiter could have been a star. It had the same ingredients like I said before, but just wasn't big enough to ignite. Ganymede, on the other hand, could have been a planet. It's the biggest moon in our solar system. It's actually bigger than the planet Mercury and about three-fourths the size of Mars. In fact, if it wasn't for Jupiter's incredible gravitational force, Ganymede could have gone off to become a planet with its own orbit around the Sun. Ganymede was formed from what is known as accretion of the dust particles from Jupiter. Basically, dust and gas particles clubbed to form this moon. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Ganymede is actually one of the only other places in the solar system other than Earth, that could support life. It's not because of the fact that it's solid rock and that it's big enough. It's actually because this moon has a saltwater ocean inside it. 
Under the outermost layer of the moon lies a huge saltwater ocean. In addition to that, we have noticed that it has a thin oxygen-like atmosphere. However, it's too thin to support life as we know it. But who knows, there might be something that thrives in these conditions. The next planet on our list is Saturn. Saturn is the second largest planet in our solar system and formed shortly after Jupiter did. Like Jupiter, Saturn is made mostly of hydrogen and helium. At Saturn's center is a dense core of metals like iron and nickel surrounded by a rocky material and other compounds that were solidified by the intense pressure and heat. It's hard to imagine, but Saturn is the only planet in our solar system whose average density is less than water. What this means is that this gas giant could float in a bathtub of water if such a colossal thing existed. We all recognize Saturn as the most aesthetically pleasing one, as it has the beautiful rings around it. Actually, Saturn isn't the only planet with rings. Jupiter, Uranus, and even Neptune have rings around them. It's just that Saturn's are incredibly huge and the most colorful. But why? Saturn is a huge planet, and it being huge means that it has a tremendous gravitational force. Scientists believe that once ago, there was a moon that formed too close to the planet. As Saturn's gravity forced the moon to spiral inwards towards the planet, it was ripped apart by the gravitational force and the particles were forced to be scattered around the planet. The planet's gravity allowed for the particles to start orbiting it, and they eventually formed a ring-like shape. After comets, asteroids tried to hit Saturn, its gravity ripped them apart too, and their particles joined the rings of Saturn. This is why Saturn's rings are so big and beautiful. After this, it is believed that the ice giants formed. You can kind of see a sort of pattern emerging here. First the gas giants, then the ice giants, and then last the terrestrial planets. Gases are less dense and so they would form planets first. Liquids and solids are a bit denser, so they would take longer to form planets. And so the terrestrial planets would take the longest. Anyways, let's start off with the ice giants of Uranus and Neptune. Both of these planets are mainly composed of ice, hence the name ice giants. There's not much to discuss about these planets, so we'll make this short. Neptune is the only planet in our whole solar system, which is not visible to the naked eye. Yeah, you can see Mars, Jupiter, and even Mercury, but you can't see Neptune. It's simply because of its extreme distance from Earth and its extreme distance from the Sun. We would only be able to detect it using a high-powered telescope. As for Uranus, it can be seen by the naked eye, but just barely. You should be able to spot it as a tiny blue-green spot in the night sky. Unlike any other planet in our solar system, Uranus actually rotates on its side. What this means that instead of rotating horizontally like every other planet, it actually rotates vertically, almost like a wheel. Yeah, even its rings are positioned vertically. Now let's get to the terrestrial planets. When it comes to the terrestrial planets, you can't really pinpoint which ones came first and which came last. So let's start off with Mercury. Mercury is the smallest planet in our whole solar system. It does have a core composing mainly of iron. 
Actually, 70% of Mercury's total mass is just iron, making it the most iron-rich planet in the whole solar system. But this isn't the only thing that distinguishes Mercury from other planets. Mercury is one of the two planets in the solar system with no moons. The reason being, of course, that Mercury's minuscule gravitational force is just not big enough to compete with that of the Sun. So if there were actually a moon orbiting Mercury, it would most likely get sucked up into the Sun's orbit and burn. Mercury's minuscule gravitational force does not just prevent the planet from having a moon, but also prevents it from having a good atmosphere. This planet's gravity is just not enough for a stable atmosphere to be formed. In fact, it being the closest planet to the Sun also has a huge impact on it not having an atmosphere. Imagine our Earth being hit by so many of the Sun's UV rays. Our atmosphere is just getting destroyed. Now imagine Mercury, the closest planet to the Sun, getting bombarded by these emissions from the Sun. Let's move on to Venus. Venus, as many of you might have heard, is considered to be Earth's twin. Before you get all excited and start packing in to move there, just hear me out. Venus is called Earth's twin, not because it can harbor life as we know it, but because of the fact that they're almost the same size, have almost the same mass, and both have atmospheres with complex weather. Venus's atmosphere is actually really interesting. It's mainly composed of carbon dioxide and has thousands and thousands of clouds. But not of water, no, but of sulfuric acid. On Earth, if there is even sulfur dioxide in the air, it rains acid. But the interesting thing about Venus is that it has never rained on this planet's surface. Yet, there is almost always clouds of sulfuric acid in the sky. But why? Why does it never rain acid on its surface? This is because it does rain, but only in the upper atmosphere. The temperatures are such that before the droplets can hit the ground, they evaporate and join the clouds in the sky. This is because the surface temperature of the planet is actually the highest in the whole solar system. Yes, Venus is the hottest planet in our solar system, not Mercury. I mean, Mercury is the closest to the sun, so shouldn't it be the hottest? And to add on, it doesn't even have an atmosphere. So shouldn't it be more susceptible to the sun's heat? Actually, the fact that Mercury does not have an atmosphere is exactly what makes it the second hottest planet in our whole solar system. Let's take Earth as an example. You know what's happening with global warming, right? There's an extreme increase in the Earth's average temperature. This is because of something known as the greenhouse effect. Basically, there are certain gases that trap heat and just hold it there, increasing the temperature of the planet. And guess what? One of the strongest greenhouse gases, as they are called, is carbon dioxide, which forms most of Venus's atmosphere. So it technically is a combined effort of the distance from the Sun and the atmosphere of Venus, which makes it the hottest planet in the whole solar system. Finally, we've gotten to Earth. Earth, the third planet in our solar system, and the only one, so far as we know, that harbors life. But why is that so? Why is Earth the only planet in the solar system that harbors life? It's because Earth is located in what we refer to as the Goldilocks zone. What this means is that it's not too far away and not too close to the Sun. 
It's just the right proximity to the sun for liquid water to exist throughout the planet. In addition to that, our planet's axis is not actually straight or even close to straight. Earth is tilted and rotates about a tilted axis. But how does that affect us? Well, if that tilt weren't there, there would be no seasons throughout the year. As if that's not enough, the poles wouldn't receive any light or heat forever. The places closer to the equator would be forever hot. And as you move away from the equator, it would just get colder and colder and it would stay that way forever. Imagine how lucky we are that the Earth is the way it is. So, the Earth has only one moon that's actually called Luna. Our moon was believed to be formed because of a huge, smaller planet or meteor that collided with the Earth. Because of this collision, the debris collected to form the moon, which started to orbit around the planet. Now, we've talked about the solar system, the various planets in them, including our Earth. Let's talk about something that has been theorized to happen in the future. Something that could bring about the end of the human race and everything else on this planet. The end of our solar system. In about 5 billion years, it is believed that the sun will reach a stage in its life known as the red giant. Not everything can last forever, not even a sun. A red giant is a sun that has burnt up all of its hydrogen and helium. When it reaches this stage, it starts to expand and become denser over time. In fact, it will expand so much that it will engulf and burn up Mercury and Venus, and possibly even our Earth. The sun will then shine 3000 times brighter than it does now and turn into a white dwarf. At this point, the remaining planets have nothing to orbit around because the sun has shrunk into a small white dwarf. Who knows, maybe they start orbiting Jupiter itself. Maybe they just float about in space. But we do know that this is the end of our solar system. We've talked about the birth of our universe, the evidence that supports our theory of how it happened, and even the formation of our solar system. This brings us to the end of our first major topic, which is the birth of our universe. A few questions that I will be answering in later episodes in later topics include what is space? How do stars die and how are they formed? What is dark energy? What exactly is antimatter and how do we know it exists? What are the elementary particles? And some of the topics that I'll be going more in depth into include gravity and Einstein's theory of relativity, particle physics and quantum mechanics, dark matter and dark energy, and light. So I'll see you next time on For the Love of Astrophysics. Mm -hmm.